at the tail end of this chapter as we've been going through this uh, letter of Paul to the church at Ephesus and the surrounding churches and um, we started this letter at the beginning of this year and it's been good as we've been going through this praise section of the uh, Trinity in um, verses 3 to 14 and then Paul's prayer last week in response to um, that and then uh, now we will um, look at the last two verses of chapter 1 but I'm going to read from verse 15 of chapter 1 for the sake of context Um, for this reason I too having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints Do not cease giving thanks for you, while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the full knowledge of him, so that you, the eyes of your heart, having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of the might of his strength, which he worked in Christ, by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the times that over the past few weeks as we've been going through this uh, letter in this section, and we see just a rich aspects of your glory unfolded in salvation and through your church. It's a wonder to to think on these things, to meditate upon these things, and then to, uh, to have these things drive us to other parts of your word and, and to see your glory unfolded through the pages of your word. Lord, help us to grasp these high and lofty truths. Help us to understand and to see you as you really are, as you have revealed yourself to us. We are at times uninformed and and misguided and distracted and also deceived by wrong notions of you. And so, Lord, help us and help me as I preach your word that you would fill me with your spirit and guide me according to your spirit that I would only speak what you want me to speak and that my words would be your words and your words would go forth in power and precision to impact the hearts and minds of your people for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we go about our day and age and 
We think of the various religions in the world, and we think of um, the various denominations and churches that um, may fall under the umbrella of Christianity, and uh, some who... um, you're not so sure if they actually are Christian. Some who know you know they definitely aren't Christian. And we think of these different uh, organizations, these different uh, churches, so to speak, and movements. And we see that many of them have a view and a notion and an understanding or a belief of Jesus Christ. And... Uh, Many are false or, um, at best, uh, misinformed or misguided. There are some uh, evangelical, um, even conservative churches that are um, well-intentioned, but maybe uh, misinformed or or maybe due to a lack of um, precision and uh, discipline and diligent study um, are misinformed concerning Jesus Christ and who he really is. And there is, in a sense, for every faithful believer who really wants to know Christ and, and desires to be accurately informed and be precise about who Christ is, there, there is a sense that we all grow in our understanding of Jesus Christ, and there is a sense that we lack in our understanding of Jesus Christ and who he is and and what he came to do and what he will do. And there's also a sense that we will, throughout all eternity, grow in our knowledge and understanding and even experience of Christ. And we know, as I've said several times, and other preachers and pastors have said that, that Christianity... As the name implies, it's all about Christ. It's all about Christ. It, it, it all centers on Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done, what he came to be. And even as we've been going through this uh, uh, introduction to, to Paul's, uh, of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we, we see uh, all members of the Trinity working in uh, salvation and the redemptive history and to bring about the salvation of sinners such as us and bringing people into his kingdom and and we see that oftentimes as Paul unfolds this section of uh, the father's work in salvation of Christ's work in salvation of the spirit's work in salvation we continue to see these two words in him in him in him uh, according to the purpose of him and, and sometimes uh, that him may be referring back to the father but primarily it's about Jesus Christ as even though the, the, the Father's plan and his, uh, his decrees and his will for creation, for uh, redemption, it, it centers on Christ and he makes much of Christ. And, and Christ, as he comes and we read in the Gospels, he makes much of the Father. And he says, I, I did not come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And, and the Spirit uh, uh, proceeds from the Father and from Christ to glorify the Father and to glorify Christ. And, and everything, for the most part, is centered on Christ. And that's why we are Christians. We are, as 
the, that, that name they gave, um, and it was mostly by uh, the enemies of the church in the early church, uh, uh, little Christ's. Because the church was striving to know Christ and to follow Christ and to be like Christ and to emulate Christ in their love towards one another and their service of, of one another. And, and the proclamation of the gospel as Christ came to preach the gospel, to see sinners saved. And as Paul writes this letter to the church at Ephesus, and I mentioned this in my introductory message concerning this letter as I tried to give a broad overview and the thrust and the key terms and points of this letter. It focuses on the church and the purpose of the church and how the church came about. And explain those, those key terms uh, in which we could uh, summarize the letter, the terms of position or posture of the Christian within the church. And I mentioned this term relationship uh, that we see throughout the whole letter, the relationship of the members of the Trinity in their work of salvation and then uh, uh, all their works amongst one another and for the church and establishing the church. And we see the relationship uh, between uh, uh, believers and God. And, uh, and then we'll later see uh, the relationship of believers and the world and, and uh, our enemy, uh, Satan, and his uh, minions and, and the world, the flesh, and, and the devil. And then we will see um, our relationships with one another in the church. But this letter primarily focuses on the church. And the church, as I said, is to be all about uh, the head of the church, Christ. We are Christians because Christ saved us. And he saved us that we would be conformed into his image and glorify him. But as Paul begins to unfold this um, <clears throat> and our salvation and each member of the Trinity's work, and he gets towards the end of chapter 1, and he speaks about uh, the rule of Christ as head over the church, which is his body. But as he does so, he, he quotes um, one Old Testament passage, which is uh, not just that one passage, but it is also quoted again in the Old Testament and then other places in the New Testament. And he's, in a sense, pointing us back to the Father's plan, but he's also unfolding uh, for us who Christ is um, from eternity past to eternity future and, and what Christ is doing in the world and in his church and his relationship to the church. And as we look at these two verses... They're, in a sense, packed full of theology uh, or Christology concerning Jesus Christ and his person and his position. And as we look at these two verses, we're going to see three things concerning Jesus Christ. Three things concerning his position, concerning his power, concerning his function, concerning uh, his relationship with the church. And so as we look at these two verses, we're going to see first, Christ's dominion over his creation. Second, Christ's rule through the redeemed. And third, Christ's power within his people. But first, Christ's dominion over his creation. As we read in verse 22, that he put all things in subjection under his feet. 
all things. The Father being the first, he put all things in subjection under his feet, the, the, the Son. And this is a quotation, as some of your Bibles may, may say in the cross-references, or, or you may see, or you may know, that this is a quotation of Psalm 8. And so, if you will, and, and I, I will have you uh, this morning flip back and forth to many uh, passages in the Old Testament and New Testament, but if you will, turn with me to Psalm 8. And as you turn there, um, uh, Psalm 8 is a psalm of David. And I've, I've, I've preached on Psalm 8 before, and I've spoken about Psalm 8. And, and Psalm 8 is essentially a commentary. It's, it's a, a divinely inspired commentary on the creation, uh, on uh, the creation of man, of uh, what God had done in uh, creating man in, uh, in Genesis 2. And we read Psalm 8, as many have, um, have speculated, um, that it, it's... It's full of praise to God for his creation. And, and as David reflects upon his creation, and primarily of his creation of man, um, we see, and, and some have speculated, that this is David uh, maybe in the fields as a shepherd boy, uh, looking up at the stars and, and looking at the, the work of God's hands, as he says, even in verse 3, when I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have established. Looking at the, this majestic uh, uh, night sky that's unfolding before him, and, and some of you probably have been to places where you can see all the stars, and, and you can even see the Milky Way, and, and uh for David and for many in the ancient world, they, they didn't have all the light pollution that we had. And, and not only that, but they're in a place with a drier climate and, and could see more than what we could see. And he sees this scene and he's like just in awe of God's creation. And he says in verse 4, what is man that you remember him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet. Put all things under his feet. And this is not just David commenting on the glory of God displayed in the night sky, um, but even as he would say in, in Psalm 19, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. But then he goes back to mankind as a creation of God. And, and that, uh, what is man that you... Uh, look upon him or, or have a relationship with mankind that you think about him, that you're concerned with him. And in light of all your glorious creation, your glory unfolding in your uh, creative works, what is man? And he sees the smallness of man, but then he also sees the, the greatness of man, that there is dignity in man, in his function and his role that, that God created mankind. He created Adam and he gave him as, as 
many uh, theologians would say, this creation mandate um, in, in Genesis uh, 1, towards the end of Genesis 1, that he was to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. That he was to exercise dominion over um, all the earth, the, the, the beasts of the field and the plants and the animals. He was to cultivate the ground and, and, and make something out of it. Make something good and, and, and beautiful out of it. And, and not just uh, uh, farming for food. Because uh, he had food. He had fruit trees and all sorts of food. And, and he, part of that is he, he was... To farm, yes, as, as part of it, but you know, we also think of, you know, if, if you've ever been to a park or you think of a Solomon and, and how he says in Ecclesiastes that he made gardens for himself. And, and that was part of, of, of man's, of Adam's role as exercising dominion over the, the earth to cultivate it, to make it beautiful, to also uh, uh, make it produce. Uh, things, uh, uh, fruit and, and, and uh, sustenance through food. But he's also to exercise dominion over the beasts of the field and, and, and gathering flocks and, and, and using them for, for clothing and milk and cheese and all that. He was to exercise dominion, but a, a big part of his dominion and his exercising of dominion and subduing was that he named things. He named the animals. He, in a sense, defined them. And so there is some sense of, uh, as Adam was made in God's image, in his likeness, we, we get this, uh, this idea of uh, what also theologians would say, the communicable and the incommunicable attributes of God. Big words to, to mean, big words to mean that there are ways in which we are like God, being made in his image, those communicable attributes that we have um, all the same emotions of God, so to speak. Um, but then there's those ways in which we are not like God at all. And, and as we learned in Sunday school this morning of his omnipotence and his omniscience and his omnipresence, that we are in no way like him. But as God created the world and he placed Adam in the garden, he gave him this mandate to exercise dominion over the creation. And in that way, Adam and the rest of mankind was to glorify God in somehow being like God or showing that we are made in God's image, that we exercise dominion over the creation, we name things, we define things, we cultivate things, we, we, we make things good. But as we all know, that Adam fell. Adam fell. He fell into sin, and because he sinned, uh, he died in uh, as death spread through him and it spread through um, all of mankind and all of creation so that uh, not only was mankind corrupted in sin, but uh, the creation itself, that it would bear thorns and thistles. And so we need a redeemer, we need a savior, as we hear in uh, Genesis 3.15, this promise, uh, as many of us would call this the uh, proto-euangelion, or the first gospel. 
in 315 that, that there is this promise of a redeemer from the seed, from the woman's seed or offspring that would come to uh, bruise the, the, the devil's head or, or to crush his head and rather the devil would bruise his heel. That he would uh, redeem mankind, but he would also redeem creation. And, and he would undo what, uh, what Adam, in a sense, uh, uh, did, or he would do what Adam failed to do. He would have dominion, complete dominion, perfect dominion over his creation. And so as we read in uh, verse 22 of chapter 1 of Ephesians, we see uh, Paul mention this. And point us back to Psalm 8 and point us back to the creation and point us back to Adam to see that Christ would come as the second Adam to exercise dominion over the creation as he redeems his people and he redeems his creation. And so we see in his dominion over his creation, first, his dominion as the second Adam. We see his dominion in three aspects here. His dominion as the second Adam, then his dominion as the Davidic king, and then his dominion as the redeemer. Another commentary on, uh, in a sense, a creation narrative, but also uh, unfolding it a bit more in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And he's addressing, he's answering a question that they raise concerning the resurrection. So turn with me for a moment to 1 Corinthians 15. In this whole chapter, um, if you, we want to know about death and what happens after you die and, and, and your hope in the resurrection, this is a chapter to go to. This is a, a chapter that, that, that many would uh, preach during Easter. Speaking of the greatness of the resurrection. But it also points us back to uh, Adam. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 21, For since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God and Father. And, and when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. Once again, Paul quoting from Psalm 8. But when he says... All things are put in subjection. It is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. It's almost as a, a further elaboration on what he is trying to speak to the Ephesians here in verse 22 and 23 of Ephesians 1. That Christ, in his death, burial, and resurrection, 
in his ascension to the Father and in his, his seating at the Father's right hand in his throne, he has been given, as he would say uh, in the Great Commission, that, that all authority and power has been given to me in heaven on earth. Go, therefore, in light of this power and authority that I have, and I'm, I'm telling you to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. In ascending the Father's throne, he is, in a sense, uh, the Father has put all things in subjection under his feet, under his rule. And yet, we know, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that we can see the world, and we can see the chaos in the world, and we can see the wars, and the famine, and the poverty, and oppression, and foolishness abounding, that uh, clearly... All things are not in subjection under Christ. That Christ is not uh, completely reigning. And so there is a sense that we get what uh, theologians would uh, say uh, concerning a lot of prophecy. The already and not yet. Or the partial fulfillment. Or Christ is ruling and reigning in a sense spiritually and through his church he is redeeming sinners. His gospel is going out. And there is in a sense that as sinners are converted and redeemed and the gospel goes out and we uh, reform our lives and we uh, bring ourselves under his rule and his reign and we subject our wills to his will that he reigns in and through us. But there is coming a day when his rule and reign will be clearly seen as he crushes all his enemies and all things are put in subjection under his feet. But there is a sense that all things are already in subjection under his feet. This is where we get the already and not yet. It's almost as if uh, uh, the father has uh, somewhat um, given the son uh, his uh, job description, so to speak, or his uh, marching orders or his decrees so that he officially has this position and this power and this rule, but it's not fully uh, exercised or, or, or fully uh, seen. It is being exercised, he is exercising his dominion and his rule over his creation, but it's not complete. It will be complete. And so this is our hope that, that he has put all things in subjection under his feet and he will put all things in subjection under his feet. And so we see uh, Paul tell the uh, Ephesians, as he told the Corinthians, uh, pointing back that, that Christ, Jesus Christ, will, uh, will complete what Adam failed to do. He, he, he is the second Adam. He, he comes to exercise dominion over creation. We see Christ's dominion over his creation in his dominion as the second Adam. That, that, that uh, Adam was a type of the one who is to come. So we also read in Romans 5. But then we also see, in a sense, his dominion as the Davidic king. As we read through, um, and some of us, 
you can see this in some of the narrative, the Old Testament narrative concerning David in uh, uh, First and Second Samuel, and um, but we we see a, a little bit more in the Psalms of David. Is oftentimes David is. Uh, uh, pouring out his heart before God, and he's explaining his situation, and and he's he's praying to God, and he's pleading with God, and he speaks about God and 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 uh, attributes of God, but also God's uh, uh, will um, in creation and through His people, and, and as David often does in the Psalms, in his Psalms, every once in a while he will prophesy about the true king, the, the Messiah, the messianic king, about uh, 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 Jesus Christ, the, the eternal king, the one who is to come. Because as even David himself knows, that, that he doesn't rule completely as he, he was supposed to. But he's looking forward, and just as Adam was a type of the one who is to come, so David also was a type of the one who is to come as the king. That, that Jesus Christ is, it would come as the perfect man to live a perfect life that none of us could live, to uh, be what Adam was not. He would also come as the perfect king and, and, and to rule and reign and to do what all of the kings of Israel uh, did not do, could not do, and, and even as David, a man after God's own heart, did not do, uh, Christ would exercise his dominion as the Davidic king, as we read that Paul says he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. And there's a sense that as uh the Father gives Christ as head over His church. There's a sense that also shows a sense of, of God giving His people kings and rulers as a head, as authority. We see David speak about the king who is to come, but we also see as in the Gospels, oftentimes as uh, uh, Jesus is uh, proclaiming who he really is to his own people and they deny him and they reject him. We see Jesus continuing to point them back to the prophets and, and the, the Old Testament uh, narratives to, uh, to show that he is the one who was prophesied to come. And he does this in Matthew chapter 22. I'd like you to turn with me there real quick. Matthew 22 in this exchange between the Pharisees and Jesus um, brings something up concerning David, the son of David. Matthew 22 and verse 41. As uh, even the Pharisees, uh, uh, even they knew, as even in our scripture reading this morning, talking about uh, the, the Christ, the son of David. They, they, they knew that the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the true king, would come from the line of David. As God had promised to David. As he made a covenant with David. And so Jesus is trying to point this out to the Pharisees. And he says this in Matthew 22 and 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Because they, they had just finished questioning him, trying to trap him. And he says, what do you think about the Christ? 
Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, Then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Therefore, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And they were stumped, and they didn't question him after that. They were like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> it was like, well, you know, in a sense, search the scriptures and you will see. Jesus is, in a sense, quoting, uh, he's quoting Psalm 110, which is also a messianic psalm, which is similar uh, somewhat of, you know, uh, either a prayer phrase or a quote of Psalm 8. He put all things in subjection under his feet. As David wrote Psalm 8, and he's speaking of, um, in a sense, not just man, not just Adam, but also the true king, the Messiah, who would come and showing his dominion as the true Davidic king, the, 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 the king that would, um, in a sense, fulfill this covenant, this promise, which God gave to David. And this is a key passage in the Old Testament. I want you to turn here to 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, and this is often overlooked by many people who would call themselves covenantal, um, that sometimes they um, have a wrong view of the covenants, and and they um, see covenants where there are no covenants. But there is a specific covenant to David here. Psalm, uh, or 2 Samuel 7. In verse 8, and uh, God is, is talking to um, Nathan the prophet, and he says to him, So now, thus you shall say to my servant David, as this is talking about David's desire to build a temple. <clears throat> he says, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I myself took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Uh, Speaking in a sense in light of maybe uh, Genesis 10 and and, uh, how Nimrod was a mighty man. Talking about the mighty rulers of the earth, the mighty kings. In verse 10 of 2 Samuel 7. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and not be disturbed again, and the unrighteous will not afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Yahweh also declares to you that Yahweh will make a house for you. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up one of your seed after you, who will come forth from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is what is known as the Davidic covenant, God's promise to David to uh, establish and appoint a king from his own line, from his own seed, that uh, Jesus Christ fulfills this promise in this covenant and even as we read here in 2 Samuel 7 that he will establish uh, his kingdom and the throne of his kingdom forever. 
Jesus came and he said, my kingdom is not of this world. And that is true. But there will be a day and age in which he establishes his kingdom on the earth. And it will, in a sense, be visible, earthly, uh, in Israel. And it will be uh, according to not only God's promise to David, but according to God's promise to Abraham. That he will have a land and a people. And he will rule over that. And he will put all things in subjection under his feet because, in a sense, God gives him uh, as head over all things, beginning with the church and then extending to the rest of creation. And then even as he brings Israel back in and he establishes this earthly kingdom. And so we see as... uh, Paul is unfolding this to the Ephesians. We, we see he speaks of Christ's dominion, that, that his dominion over his creation as the second Adam and then as the Davidic king and then as the redeemer, as the redeemer of sinful man that he, in a sense, uh, has dominion over uh, the effects of sin and the effects of the curse and that he reverses it, that even as uh, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. That 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He exercises dominion as the redeemer of sinful man. Like uh, continuing with this theme, in a sense, of uh, Adam and David, I'd like you to turn with me to Romans 15 and see this as, as uh, uh, Paul uh, speaks to the Romans uh, in unfolding the gospel in, uh, in redemptive, God's plan for redemptive history all throughout that letter to the Romans. And he says this in Romans 15, 12. And again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse. Uh, uh, David's father, the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's he's quoting from Isaiah uh, 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 about uh, the Davidic king, about Jesus, and and that this salvation, uh, that the Messiah wasn't just for Israel, but for the whole world. And that God would save people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and they would uh, hope in Christ, in the true Davidic king, and his dominion as king, as the second Adam, but also as the redeemer, as uh, even Job would say. The, the first chronologically, the first book of the Bible, as Job says in Job 19, I know that my redeemer lives. That there is a Redeemer, there is always a hope for a Redeemer that He would come and redeem sinful man and rule and exercise His dominion. And this is why uh, Jesus says in the Great Commission, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore make disciples. So that people will uh, submit to my rule in their lives as a new creation. Uh, down at the heart level. 
that he would, uh, through the preaching of the gospel, save sinners and take out that heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh that wants to obey him. And even as this promise of the, the new covenant is given to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, there is this sense that God says, I will put my law within them and my spirit within them so that they will obey and they will follow. I like what one commentator says. He says this concerning uh, this aspect of Christ's authority and his exaltation. He says that Christ in his exaltation over the universe is God's gift to the church. He is the head over every power and authority and as such is bestowed on the church. There is given to the church and for the church's benefit a head who is also head over all things. The church has authority and power to overcome all position, all, or all opposition rather, because her leader and head is Lord of all. You know, we're, it's clear, it's evident that we are in uh, entering into an election season. And as um, we are prone to, and, and every uh, citizen of every nation is prone to, We're prone to place our hopes in an earthly ruler. And we want a good earthly ruler. But they're all flawed. Even the best of kings and rulers are flawed to one degree or another. And some are really, really, really flawed. Our hope is not in an earthly ruler, an earthly prince. It's in the king of kings and lord of lords who has all power and authority. And as Paul says to the Corinthians, we, we do not now see everything in subjection under his feet, but everything is in subjection under his feet and will be in subjection under his feet. And so Paul paints this picture for the Ephesians as he unfolds this plan of redemptive history that is centered on Christ and he he reminds them and explains to them Christ's dominion over his creation and then he expands upon that to Christ's rule through the redeemed that is the second point of Jesus Christ and his position that we see his rule through the redeemed he gave him as head over all things to the church, that that, that uh, subjection, that dominion wasn't just for himself, but in a sense, we being redeemed through him, we uh, will rule and reign with him when he returns. And there is a sense that we uh, rule and reign with him, uh, spiritually speaking, as we uh, uh, obey his command to go proclaim this gospel and call other sinners to repent and believe, to bow the knee to King Jesus. And so we see Christ rule through the redeemed and his inherited rule, that, that this rule was given to him. He gave him as head. And this is something that, that uh, Peter is trying to explain to uh, the, the, the Jews, and this is right after Pentecost, as he is uh, probably one of the best sermons Peter ever preached, um, or at least that we know of, and he's preaching and he's explaining, he's connecting the points concerning uh, 
the Messiah concerning uh, his uh, coming from the seed of David. And I'd like you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2. And as he's preaching this sermon, he says to them, Peter says to the, the, the Jews there, around the temple, he says, I, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to set one of the fruit of his body on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither forsaken to Hades nor did his Flesh see corruption, uh, quoting Psalm 16, as we will see later tonight. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you both see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He is the true seed of David. He has a rule, and his rule is exercised through his redeemed people, through those he would call to himself, through the preaching of the gospel and this inherited rule that God gave him as head over the church, the, the, the beginning of his exercise of his dominion and his rule over the nations begins with him being given as head over all things to the church. He, he rules through the redeemed, so to speak. This is his uh, spiritual dominion or spiritual rule where he says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting. And there is a sense that, you know, even I feel it, probably most of you feel it. That we see the things in this world and, and we want to fight against it. It's an, a part of it, I, I know it's part of it, my military background that, you know, and some of you may feel the same way, that you almost at times wish his kingdom was of this world so that you could fight. Because that's so much easier than proclaiming the gospel, isn't it? It's, it's easier than loving your enemies. And we naturally want to fight. But we... Uh, extend his rule and his dominion, our, our king, we, by proclaiming his gospel. And that he is, uh, in a sense, uh, a king of love and of mercy and of grace. But he's also a king of wrath and of power and of authority. But he is patient. He's not willing that any would suffer, but that all would come to repentance and faith. So we see him rule through his church, through the redeemed as his inherited rule, as he is head. But we also see his comprehensive rule. His comprehensive rule that he has been given head over all things, all things, to the church. That there's nothing, as uh, Abraham Kuyper famously said, there's not one square of the the 
one square inch of the universe um, by which uh, Christ does not uh, say mine. It's his. It's all his. It's been his from, the, from eternity past into an eternity future, and it will be his when he returns. Another passage, which we see a lot of the same quotations of Psalm 8 and Psalm 110, and, and uh, same things we see in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. As I've commented on this several times concerning Hebrews, this, this rich letter concerning uh, who Jesus is, that he's greater than the prophets, he's greater than Moses, he's greater than the sacrifices, he's greater than all the great high priests. And, and the writer to the Hebrews is, is unfolding this argument to them, that these believers, these Jewish background believers who are tempted to fall back into Old Testament Judaism and the Old Testament sacrificial system and, and trusting in those earthly sacrifices rather than in the perfect sacrifice of Christ and the perfect rule of Christ. And he says this in Hebrews 2, in verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Also quoting Psalm 8. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom all are, are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. What, what he's saying is as he quotes Psalm 8, he, he's speaking of Christ's uh, humbling or um, as many uh, theologians would say, the kenosis or this hypostatic union where Christ humbled himself by taking upon human flesh. He wasn't created. He's eternal. He, he, he did not change, so to speak. He, he, he remained God. And as uh, some theologians have said, and I believe it's in one of the creeds, uh, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. He humbled himself by adding, not by subtracting. He added humanity to his deity, so to speak, so that he could taste death for everyone. So that he could live that perfect life that none of us could live and die the death that we all deserve to die. And by his wounds, we would be healed. He, in a sense, exercises his dominion through his uh, sacrifice and through his redemption of sinners through his redemption of a people for himself, but not only a people, that that redemption would then extend to the creation and to a kingdom. That's why Paul says he gave him as head over all things 
to the church, that the, the exercise of his dominion and his rule begins with the church, which with saving sinners and redeeming sinners, and then he will redeem the creation. And so we see Christ's rule through the redeemed and his inherited rule, and then in his comprehensive rule, and in his communal rule to the church. As Paul would also say in Colossians 2, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and in him you have been filled, who is the head over all rule and authority, in which he talks about him filling us, his body, with the fullness of him, this sense of spiritual power or indwelling of filling, uh, partly uh, the work of the Spirit, but also of Christ in uniting us with him, one in um, this spiritual baptism, as Paul would also uh, explain in Romans 6. Or as John says in his gospel, in the beginning of his gospel in John 1.16, for of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. His rule begins through the church, through the redeemed. I like what the Baptist scholar, um, uh, Greek scholar A.T. Robertson wrote in his commentary. He says this, All things are summed up in Christ, who is the pleroma of God, that Greek word which is translated uh, fullness. And in particular, does Christ fill the church universal as his body? Hence we see in Ephesians the dignity of the body of Christ, which is ultimately to be filled with the fullness of God when it grows up into the fullness of Christ. That's why we are called to be Christ-like and to walk after Christ. And it's why we will be conformed into the image of Christ. And it's why we, in a sense, are, will rule and reign with Him. That we will be one as He is one in the end. That Christ's rule is through the redeemed. And so we see first his dominion over his creation, then his rule through the redeemed. And finally, Paul wants the Ephesians to see Christ's power within his people. His power within his people. It is why he also prays that this doxology we see in the middle of Ephesians, towards the end of chapter 3, and he prays that, that, that they would be rooted and grounded in love so that they may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God as you look to Christ and you're being conformed into the image of Christ and you worship Christ and you see Christ's power within his people that this power, this power to unite all peoples, his power to equip and his power to reconcile. But first we see Christ's power within his people and his power to unite. As Paul would later talk about this division that he broke down this wall of division between Jew and Gentile later on in, in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3. That Christ has the power to unite all people. Even though he is the Messiah and he comes from the line of David, that, that um, this salvation wasn't just for the Jews, but for all peoples. Even Isaiah would say, in several passages, that, that in him the Gentiles will hope. 
He has power to unite all peoples, those who are near and those who are far off. Those who are far off, in a sense, from the oracles of God that, that were given through the, the prophets and through the nation of Israel. That, that, as even Paul says in Romans, that salvation is of the Jews or comes from the Jews and extends throughout the rest of the world. That this gospel begins with them and it is to be proclaimed throughout the whole world that Israel itself was uh, supposed to be a witness nation, but they did not obey that command that was given to them in, in a sense, the beginning of Deuteronomy. But Christ would fulfill that in His power to unite all peoples, those who are near and those who are far off. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12 as he is unfolding in that chapter and explaining spiritual gifts, correcting this wrong notion of spiritual gifts and the exercise of spiritual gifts in the church, in the body. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, through though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For also by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Of one Spirit. You know, you hear a lot today and, and recently especially in the American context of um, <clears throat> racial equity, racial division, racism. And, and that's not to say that racism is not a sin. Um, it, it's a sin of partiality, and it's in every culture and every ethnicity. But... There's a sense that, that people and Christians talk about the black church or the white church or, uh, you know, in, in more, um, I guess, diverse uh, metropolitan areas. You, you not only see the white church and the black church, you see the Asian church, the Hispanic church. You see um, Armenian churches. You see churches of several different ethnicities. Well, the fact of the matter is that the church is is not to be uh, characterized by ethnicities. It, it should, in a sense, uh, uh, represent the community. Because we are all made one. We are one body. That, that's not to be something that is to be emphasized within the church. He says, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, uh, whatever your heritage or your social economic status, we are all made to drink of one spirit. We, Christ has the power to break down all those dividing walls in culture, in society, and to make us one. That's why what's so amazing about the church is we come to, and you might see this in more larger churches, but you, you, you see people from so many different backgrounds and ethnicities and ages and family situations and socioeconomic static and workplace and abilities and giftings, and God makes us one. He unites us into one body by the power of Christ so that there should be no partiality within the church and no division within the church. The church is called to be one. And only Christ has this power to break down all those dividing walls. That's why it's funny when you see people try to, in a sense, manufacture diversity. 
You can't really manufacture diversity. There's things you can do to promote diversity, but only Christ can bring true unity within diversity. And this is a reflection of the Trinity. A reflection of the Trinity that there's three in one. They're all one, but yet they are distinct persons. And in the end, we will all be one with him. Through his fullness, through his power. In the church, this power to unite all peoples, and then this power to equip the people. His power to equip them for service through the fullness of him who fills all in all. I'd like you to turn with me for a moment, just a couple pages over to uh, Ephesians 4. As he begins this chapter, and this is the really dividing half of this letter, as he unfolds doctrine of the church, and then he unfolds the application of the church, and how the church is to live and move and have their being, that they are to be one. One spirit, one body, one calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And then he gets into the more specific applications. He says this in Ephesians 4, 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then he talks about these giftings and the different offices uh, within the body of um, beginning with apostles and prophets and evangelists and then pastors and teachers. And then he talks about the equipping, the purpose for the equipping of the body so that we may all grow up into the head. We've been given gifts and there's different offices and functions within the body, but The whole goal is that we would be equipped and that we would attain to the unity of the faith, that we would be one in Christ, that we would would grow up into the head, that we would focus upon the head and not one another, but we would exercise our individual gifts for the purpose of the body growing up. Paul also talks about this in Colossians 2 is he explains how uh, we are to grow spiritually in this aspect of sanctification that we are to worship Christ and as we worship Christ and we hold fast to the head Colossians 2 19 from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, talking about the different members and their giftings, grows with a growth that is from God. This is the fullness. The fullness of Him, which is also uh, uh, manifested in our giftings. And we are to grow up. And so we see Christ's power within His people and His power to unite and give them this fullness to unite them so that he fills all in all and his power to equip and then his power to reconcile Jew and Gentile, to bring them all into one. As Paul also says to the Colossians, he's pointing back here in Ephesians 22, he's pointing back to, as we saw, that he points back to the creation. 
But he also uh, explains this a little bit more in his fullness in, in, in uh, Colossians 1. Is he says this about Christ. And, and it's so important that we get the right view of Christ. Colossians 1.16, For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him whether things on earth or things in heaven." His rule begins with his redeemed and he shows his power within his people to reconcile all things. He fills them with the fullness of him who fills all in all. I like what one commentator said. He says this, The Christ who fills the church also fills the universe so that the church is the fullness of him who fills the whole creation. Christ is as once imminent within the church and yet transcendent over it, as he is both within and above the cosmos. And it's something, uh, enough to blow your mind, and, and as you grow in Christ, and you grow in your knowledge of Christ, and you grow in your knowledge of Scripture, there's those several points in your Christian walk, which you're, you know, as the, the modern-day emoji of our time... <laughs> Christ is overall and in all, but he's also in us, and he walks among us. He is imminent and yet transcendent. You know, most of you have recently seen, and this probably, I, I believe it came out uh, first last year. Most of you have seen it or heard it. The <clears throat> He gets us. I, I, I've not personally watched it I, I, I've, I've heard about it, and, and there are a few major problems with that, that campaign and those videos. And, and it's, it's not the fact that he does not get us. Jesus gets us. He does get us. The sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent creator, redeemer, and Lord of all creation definitely gets us. The problem is that most of humanity does not get him. He gets us, but we do not get him. Because we want to lower him to our level. And we want to emphasize those attributes and those characteristics which we like. And we want to diminish those attributes and characteristics which we don't like. And we want to split Christ up and divide him. We want to take him uh, on our own terms. We, we want to, as many uh, uh, pastors and theologians have said several times, and I've said, in the beginning God created man in his own likeness and image, and ever since then man has been trying to return the favor. Part of Christianity, part of becoming a Christian, part of, of becoming a believer, of, of honoring God is submitting to God. Bowing the knee to God, 
coming to God on His terms, not your terms. He gets us. He definitely gets us. Problem is, we don't get Him. And in order to get Him, you need to understand what He said about Him. As Paul writes in Philippians 2, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is Lord whether you confess it or not. He created the whole cosmos, the whole creation, and He will rule and reign over it whether you submit to Him or not. And the message of the gospel is that you need to bow the knee and recognize that you have been created by an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God who knows you. And that ought to cause you to tremble with fear. But as we also mentioned earlier in Sunday school, that understanding the attributes and characteristics of God that also ought to comfort you, that God is not only just and holy and full of wrath, and He will punish every sin, but He is also merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And He demonstrates that love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so that is the gospel, beginning with the right view of God, and then the right view of mankind, and then mankind's right response to bow the knee, to repent, and to believe upon Him, as Paul says in Romans 10. This is, you know, years ago, this, this silly notion, this silly notion uh, uh, about, uh, you know, this, this uh, free grace and, and, uh, and uh, 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 Speaking against lordship salvation. It's only, it's only silly Americans that don't get this. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, God, King, Master, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You must confess him as Lord. You must bow the knee. Because he is Lord whether you confess it or not. For with a, per, with a heart, a person believes, leading to righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, leading to salvation. Even if you deny lordship salvation, there's a sense you cannot be saved without it. Because it, unless you confess him as Lord, you won't be saved. You have to bow the knee. So Isaiah says, God, speaking through Isaiah, seek the Lord. While he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. He cannot pardon. He does not have the authority to pardon unless he's Lord. You think about that. He's in complete control. And we need to submit to him. Recognize that we have transgressed his law. We've transgressed our Lord and our master and our king. And because of that, we deserve his punishment. But our king is not only uh, all-powerful, but he's all 
all-loving. He, he's gracious and merciful. He, he doesn't desire that anyone would perish, but that all would come to repentance and faith. And so if you're outside of Christ this morning, the command to you is to recognize your woeful position, to recognize who you have sinned against, to recognize the fact that he will bring every act into judgment. He will judge you for every careless word. And your response is to bow the knee, to repent, and to believe upon him. To seek him while he may be found. To cast yourself upon the mercy of our sovereign Lord and creator, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. So often in our society, and, and sadly, we must confess, even in our own hearts and minds, we have wrong views of you, or we have immature views of you, or we have views of you which, which need to be reformed. So Lord, help us. Help us to see you as you are. Help us to see you exactly as your word says, and not to impose upon your word, not to presume upon your word, not to inject our own ideas into your word, but to humbly submit to your word. As you even said, this is the one who I will look. He is humble and contrite of spirit and trembles at my every word. May we be those type of people that tremble at your word and then grow by your word and go out and proclaim your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.